Blog Talk Radio.
Greetings, this is Abayomi Azikawe, and welcome back to another edition of the Pan-African Journal. The Pan-African Journal is an audio news magazine. It's brought to you here on a weekly basis. Uh, I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikawe. Today is Tuesday, uh, January the 1st, uh, 2024. Uh, We're broadcasting from our studios in downtown Detroit. We'd like to thank all of our listeners for tuning in uh, once again to yet another edition uh, of uh, the Pan-African Journal, this special edition uh, of our program. Later on, uh, we'll be bringing you our regular Pan-African Newswire report, and we'll have uh, some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day. And uh, we're going to do our musical interlude uh, right now uh, with the music uh, of Le Orchestra Continental uh, from the Congolese uh, region of Africa. Let's listen in.
Moringaka Mama na Shamisha Kanisa na no mwana nani ya kovatela Kako yo kela yo Nikunya solo na molato na moda na ringaka Uwaya Thank you. 
loco yo koi mege ngai josifono de na la figi mote madiona si porteño soma kamoro na ni mi poale nga na lingi yo sel pege na kokunda na go na kokunda mote
Welcome back. And that was uh, the Continental Orchestra, uh, Le Orchestra Continental uh, from the Democratic Republic of Congo. Classic uh, Pan-African music. And you're listening to the Pan-African Journal, special worldwide radio broadcast uh, for Monday, January 1st, uh, 2024. And we're broadcasting from our studios uh, in uh, downtown Detroit, We want to move into our Pan-African Newswire segment. Uh, These are some of the headlines in today's Pan-African Newswire. As many as 80% of the buildings in northern Gaza where bombing has been the most severe are damaged or destroyed a higher percentage than in Dresden. The destruction generated by Israeli airstrikes in the Gaza Strip is comparable uh, to the bombing of Germany during World War II, according to a report published uh, by the Wall Street Journal on Saturday. And uh, nearly 70% of Gaza's 439,000 homes and about half of its buildings have been damaged or destroyed, the Wall Street Journal wrote, adding that most of the Strip's uh, 36 hospitals are shut down and only eight are accepting patients. The American newspaper quotes Robert Papp, a political scientist at the University of Chicago and the author of A History of Aerial Bombing as saying that, quote, the word Gaza is going to go down in history along with Dresden and other famous cities that have been bombed. What what you're seeing in Gaza is the top 25% of the most intense punishment campaigns in history, Papp reportedly added. The Wall Street Journal further reported that according To the analysis of satellite data by remote sensing experts at the University of New York and Oregon State University, as many as 80% of the buildings in northern Gaza where the bombing has been most severe are damaged or destroyed. Now, according to U.S. officials uh, cited in the report, Israel dropped 29,000 weapons on Gaza in a little over two months. By comparison, the U.S. military dropped 3,678 munitions on Iraq uh, from 2004 to 2010, uh, the report added. Analyzing the kind of weapons that were used to inflict maximum damage, as announced uh, by Israeli military spokesman Daniel Hagari, the Wall Street Journal reported that among the weapons provided by the United States to Israel during the Gaza war are 2,000-pound bunker buster bombs designed to penetrate concrete shelters. Uh, which military analysts said are usually used to hit military targets in more sparsely populated areas. The Gaza Strip is one of the most densely populated areas in the world. According to the Gaza Ministry of Health, 21,823 Palestinians have been killed and 56,451 have been wounded in Israel's ongoing genocide in Gaza, which started on October the 7th. Palestinians and international estimates say that the majority of those killed and wounded are women and children. The number of Palestinians killed in 2023 is the largest since the Nakba, the catastrophe. In uh, uh, in 1948, the Palestinian Central Bureau of Statistics uh, said yesterday, in a statement uh, issued on the last day of the year, uh, the center noted that 22,404 Palestinians have been killed since the beginning of the year, including 22,141 since the start of uh, the Israeli aggression. 98% of the Palestinians killed were from the Gaza Strip, including 9,000 children 
and 6,450 women. You're listening to the Pan-African Newswire segment uh, of uh, the Pan-African Journal. In other news, uh, five combatant brigades operating in the Gaza Strip is being pulled out from Gaza. The Israeli army has decided to demobilize uh, five combat brigades operating in the Gaza Strip. They include the 551st and the 114th Reserve Brigades, as well as three training brigades. Yadav Aronoff said in its English website that soldiers from these brigades were returning to Israel to help in the replenishing of the Israeli economy. The Israeli army uh, said that there would no no longer be a need for having these many soldiers inside Gaza as the army's mission has been largely achieved in northern and central regions of the Strip. Out of the estimated 17 brigades uh, operating in Gaza, four are still fighting in the northern parts uh, and the battles there are far from over. Moreover, the battles in central Gaza have not yet exceeded the eastern borders of Al Baruch refugee camp. Uh, several Israeli army brigades have tried and failed to control a very small area of only a few square kilometers. No serious fighting has yet taken place in Nusrat, Magazi, and Deir al Bala, uh, which continue to be subjected to relentless bombardments and massacres. Though it is true that seven brigades have been reportedly fighting in the Khan Yunus region in the south, they are yet to achieve any significant military gains. For weeks, Israeli military have been hinting that the third phase of the fighting will be starting soon. The third phase does not necessarily imply that the first and second phases have succeeded, although this is what the Israeli government would like the world to believe. At best, the third phase can be considered an attempt at running away forward, as in giving the impression that the war is going according to plan. The problem for the Israeli military from the very first day of the war is that there was never a clear military plan to match the lofty goals of destroying and dismantling Hamas and reoccupying the Gaza Strip. Yesterday, right-wing Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu vowed to continue the war for many more months. And uh, finally, in the Republic of South Africa, the number of people killed in recent floods in KwaZulu-Natal province has risen to 22 Uh, with three more still missing. The KwaZulu-Natal Department of Cooperative Governance and Traditional Affairs said on Saturday, the heavy rains on December the 24th resulted in Bell Spirit River bursting its banks, causing water to overflow onto uh, N11 Road in Ladysmith Town, KwaZulu-Natal province. Several vehicles traveling along the N11 and household located nearby were swept away. KwaZulu-Natal Province Premier Namusu Dube in Kube has examined the damage caused by the flash floods, which have tragically claimed 22 lives as of Saturday, with others still unaccounted for, the department said in a statement. Communities are urged to report missing persons, especially those who disappeared on Christmas Eve, according to the statement. The South African Weather Service has warned that sporadic showers and thundershowers are expected in KwaZulu-Natal province, uh, was expected uh, yesterday. Uh, The KwaZulu-Natal Department of Cooperative Governance and Traditional Affairs warned residents that there are still likely to be floods since the ground is still saturated due to the past rains. 
With that, uh, we're going to conclude uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment of the Pan-African Journal. In concluding this segment of our program, we'd like to remind our listeners the Pan-African Newswire is an international electronic press service. It is designed to foster intelligent discussions on the affairs of African people throughout the continent and the world. The press agency was founded in January of 1998. Since then, it has published tens of thousands of articles and dispatches in hundreds of newspapers, magazines, journals, research reports, and on blogs and websites throughout the world. The Pan-African Newswire represents the only daily international news source on Pan-African and global affairs. If you'd like to log on to the Pan-African Newswire so you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day, just go to our website, and uh, that is uh, Blog Talk Radio. Go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. And uh, if you'd like to um, February the 1st, uh, 2024, um, forward slash panafrican journal. We'll take a break.
And that uh, band included uh, Jimi Hendrix on guitar, uh, Billy Cox on bass, and Buddy Miles on drums, the Band of Gypsies. Four uh, concerts on December 31st, uh, where there were two. And on January 1st of uh, 1970, there were two more. Four concerts of this historic uh, legend. Special worldwide radio broadcast uh, for Monday, uh, January 1, uh, 2024. And just in two weeks, uh, it will be the federally recognized holiday in honor of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., uh, his 95th birthday. Uh, he was born on April 4th of 1968. Uh, he was born on January the 15th of uh, 1929. And uh, at this upcoming MLK Day, which will be the 21st annual MLK Day, uh, organized by the Detroit MLK Committee, uh, there will be uh, President uh, Sean Fain of the UAW International and uh, Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib uh, of uh, the 12th District uh, in the state of Michigan, and others uh, who will be uh, present, yours truly co-chairing along with Aurora Harris, uh, and many others. We're going to go back and listen to a historic speech uh, by Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. delivered in February of 1967 uh, in California uh, at a fundraiser for The Nation magazine. Uh, this is perhaps his first public speech uh, against uh, the U.S. military intervention in Vietnam. This uh, speech is entitled The Casualties of the Vietnam War. Uh, let's uh, listen to uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Williams, other distinguished platform guests, ladies and gentlemen. I need not pause to say how very delighted I am to be here this afternoon and to have the privilege of being a part of this very significant conference. And in the very beginning, I want to express my deep personal appreciation uh, to my friend Robert Vaughn for these very kind and gracious words of introduction. It's always good to be in California and to renew old friendships and fellowships, and I'm happy to share the platform with uh, friends that I've known all along. I see Jack Tenner is here with us today, and he's been a great supporter of our work in the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. You know, he's a great fundraiser, and one day we were having, or one evening rather, we were having a fundraising meeting at the home of Burton Lancaster, and when he got to making the appeal 
My associate, Ralph Abernathy, said you sound like a good Baptist preacher. <laughs> so whenever he talks to you about money, you better hold your pocketbook very closely. <laughs> but we're happy to be here with all of these friends. And, of course, whenever I come to California, particularly when I take the flight out of New York or Chicago, I'm always happy to get on the ground because the flight over the Rockies, you know, is usually very turbulent. And after a turbulent flight, I am always happy to land. I don't want to give anybody here the impression that I don't have faith in God in the air. It's simply that I've had more experience with him on the ground. <laughs> <laughs> Let me say briefly how happy I am to be here under the auspices of Nation magazine. Uh, through its journalistic integrity and its genuine liberalism, uh, certainly this magazine has carved for itself an imperishable niche in the annals of uh, journalistic history in our nation. And I know those of us who are readers and subscribers of Nation magazine are deeply indebted to it for all that it has done to make the discussion of the vital issues of our day and our age a reality. I think we can all say I'm sure Nation would appreciate that applause you're about to give. <laughs> and certainly in these days of emotional tension, when the problems of the world are gigantic in extent and chaotic in detail, that is no greater need than for sober thinking, healthy debate, creative dissent and enlightened discussion. And I think this is why this particular symposium is so important. And so this afternoon I would like to speak to you candidly and I hope forthrightly about our present involvement in Vietnam. And I have chosen as a subject from which to speak the casualties of the war in Vietnam. We are certainly all aware of the nightmarish physical casualties of this war. We see them in our living rooms and all of their tragic dimensions on television screens. And we read about them on our subway and bus rides in daily newspaper accounts. We see the rice fields of a small Asian country uh, being trampled at will and burned at whim. We see grief-stricken mothers with crying babies clutched tightly in their arms as they watched their little huts burst forth into flames. We see the fields and valleys of battle being painted with humankind's blood. We see the broken bodies left prostrate in countless fields. 
Most tragic of all is the casualty list among children. It is estimated that some one million Vietnamese children have been casualties of this brutal war, a war in which children are incinerated by napalm, in which American soldiers die in mounting numbers, while other American soldiers, according to press accounts, in unrestrained hatred shoot the wounded enemy as they lie on the ground, is a war that mutilates the conscience. These casualties are enough to cause all men to rise up with righteous indignation and oppose the very nature of this evil war. But the physical casualties of the war in Vietnam are not alone the catastrophes. The casualties of principles and values are equally disastrous and injurious. If the casualties of principle are not healed, the physical casualties will continue to mount. One of the first casualties of the war in Vietnam was the charter of the United Nations in taking armed action against the Viet, uh, the Viet Cong and North Vietnam, the United States clearly violated the UN Charter, which provides in Chapter 1, Article 2, that all members shall refrain in their international relations from the threat or use of force against the territorial integrity or political independence of any state or in any other manner inconsistent with the purposes of the United Nations. And in Chapter 7, it states that the Security Council shall determine the existence of any threat to peace, breach of the peace, or act of aggression, and shall make recommendations or shall decide what measures shall be taken to maintain or restore international peace and security. It is very obvious that our government blatantly violated its obligation under the Charter of the UN to submit to the Security Council its charge of aggression against North Vietnam. Instead, we unilaterally launched an all-out war on Asian soil. In the process, we have undermined the purpose of the UN and caused its effectiveness at many points to atrophy. We have also placed our nation in the position of being morally and politically isolated. Even the long-standing allies of America have adamantly refused to join our government in this ugly war. As Americans and lovers of democracy, we should carefully ponder the consequence of our nation's declining moral status in the world. The second casualty of the war in Vietnam is the principle of self-determination. By entering a war that is little more than a domestic civil war, America has ended up supporting a new form of colonialism covered up by certain niceties of complexity. Whether we realize it or not, our participation in the war in Vietnam is an ominous expression of our lack of sympathy for the oppressed 
our paranoid anti-communism, our failure to feel the ache and anguish of the have-nots. It reveals our willingness to continue participation in neo-colonialist adventures. A brief look at the background and history of this war reveals with brutal clarity the ugliness of our policy. The Vietnamese people proclaimed their own independence in 1945 after the combined French and Japanese occupation and before the communist revolution in China. They were led by the now well-known Ho Chi Minh. Even though they quoted the American Declaration of Independence in their own document of freedom, we refused to recognize them. Instead, we decided to support France in its reconquest of her former colony. President Truman felt then that the Vietnamese people were not ready for independence. And we again fell victim to the deadly Western arrogance that has poisoned the international atmosphere for so long. With that tragic decision, we rejected a revolutionary government seeking self-determination and a government that had been established not by China, for whom the Vietnamese people have no great love, but by clearly indigenous forces that included some communists. For nine years following 1945, we denied the people of Vietnam the right of independence. For nine years, we vigorously supported the French in their abortive effort to recolonize Vietnam. Before the end of the war, we were meeting 80% of the French war costs. Even before the French were defeated at Dien Bien Phu, they began to despair of their reckless action. But we did not. We encouraged them with our huge financial and military supplies to continue the war even after they had lost the will. During this period, United States governmental officials began to brainwash the American public. John Foster Dulles assiduously sought to prove that Indochina was essential to our security against the Chinese communist peril. When a negotiated settlement of the war was reached in 1954 through the Geneva Accord, it was done against our will. After doing all that we could to sabotage the planning for the Geneva Accord, we finally refused to sign it. Soon after this, we helped install Premier Diem. We supported him in his betrayal of the Geneva Accord Accord and his refusal to have the promised 1956 election. We watched with approval as he engaged in ruthless and bloody persecution of all opposition forces. When Diem's infamous actions finally led to the formation of the National Liberation Front, the American public was duped into believing that the civil rebellion was being waged by puppets from Hanoi. As Douglas Pike wrote, and hard Americans helplessly watched Diem tear apart the fabric of Vietnamese society 
more effectively than the communists had ever been able to do, it was the most efficient act of his entire career. Since DM's death, we have actively supported another dozen military dictatorships, all in the name of fighting for freedom. When it became evident that these regimes could not defeat the Viet Cong, we began steadily to increase our forces, calling them military advisors rather than soldiers. Today we are fighting an all-out war, undeclared by Congress. We have well over 300,000 American servicemen fighting in that benighted and unhappy country. American planes are bombing the territory of another country. And we are committing atrocities equal to any perpetrated by the Viet Cong. This is the third largest war in American history. All of this reveals that we are in an untenable position, morally and politically. We are left standing before the world glutted by our own barbarity. We are engaged in a war that seeks to turn the clock of history back and perpetuate white colonialism. And the greatest irony and tragedy of it all is that our nation, which initiated so much of the revolutionary spirit of the modern world, is now cast in the mold of being an arch anti-revolutionary. A third casualty of the war in Vietnam is a great society. This confused war has played havoc with our domestic destinies. Despite feeble protestations to the contrary, the promises of the great society have been shot down on the battlefields of Vietnam. The pursuit of this widened war has narrowed domestic welfare programs, making the poor white and Negro bear the heaviest burdens both at the front and at home. While the anti-poverty program is cautiously initiated, zealously supervised and evaluated for immediate results, billions are liberal, liberally expended for this ill-considered war. The recently revealed misestimate of the war budget amounts to $10 billion for a single year. This error alone is more than five times the amount committed to anti-poverty programs. The security we profess to seek in foreign adventures, we will lose in our decaying cities. The bombs in Vietnam explode at home. They destroy the hopes and possibilities for a decent America. If we reversed investments and gave the armed forces the anti-poverty budget, the generals could be forgiven if they walked off the battlefield in disgust. Poverty, <coughs> poverty, urban problems, and social progress generally are ignored when the guns of war become a national obsession. When it is not our security that is at stake, but questionable and vague commitments to reactionary regimes, values disintegrate into foolish and adolescent slogans. It is estimated that we spend $322,000 for each enemy we kill. 
While we spend in the so-called war on poverty in America only about $53 for each person classified as poor, we have escalated the war in Vietnam and de-escalated the skirmish against poverty. It challenges the imagination to contemplate what lives we could transform if we were to cease killing. At this moment in history, it is irrefutable that our world prestige is pathetically frail. Our war policy excites pronounced contempt and aversion virtually everywhere, even when some national governments, for reasons of economic and diplomatic interest, do not condemn us. Their people, in surprising measure, have made clear they do not share the official policy. We are isolated in our false values in a world demanding social and economic justice. We must undergo a vigorous reordering of our national priorities. A fourth casualty of the war in Vietnam is the humility of our nation. Through rugged determination, scientific and technological progress and dazzling achievements, America has become the richest and most powerful nation in the world. We have built machines that think and instruments that peer into the unfathomable ranges of interstellar space. We have built gargantuan bridges to span the seas and gigantic buildings to kiss the skies. Through our airplanes and spaceships, we have dwarfed distance and placed time in chains. And through our submarines, we have penetrated oceanic depths. This year, our national gross product will reach the astounding figure of $780 billion. All of this is a staggering picture of our great power. But honesty impels me to admit that our power has often made us arrogant as a nation, we feel that our money can do anything. We arrogantly feel that we have everything to teach other nations and nothing to learn from them. We often arrogantly feel that we have some divine messianic mission to police the whole world. We are arrogant in not allowing young nations to go through the same growing pains, turbulence, and revolution that characterized our history. We are arrogant in our contention that we have some sacred mission to protect people from totalitarian rule, while we make little use of our power to end the evils of South Africa and Rhodesia, and while we in fact support dictatorships with guns and money under the guise of fighting communism. We are arrogant in professing to be concerned about the freedom of foreign nations while not setting our own house in order. Many of our senators and congressmen vote joyously to appropriate billions of dollars for war in Vietnam. And these same senators and congressmen vote loudly against a fair housing bill to make it possible for a Negro veteran of Vietnam to purchase a decent home. We arm Negro soldiers to kill on foreign battlefields but offer little protection for their relatives from beatings and killings in our own South. 
We are willing to make the Negro 100% of a citizen in warfare, but reduce him to 50% of a citizen on American soil. Of all the good things in life, the Negro has approximately one-half those of whites. Of the bad, he has twice that of whites. And thus, half of all Negroes live in substandard housing, and he has half the income of whites. When we turn to the negative experiences of life, the Negro has a double share. There are twice as many unemployed. The rate of infant mortality among Negroes is double that of whites. There were twice as many Negroes in combat in Vietnam at the beginning of 1967, and twice as many died in action in proportion to their numbers in the population as whites. All of this reveals that our nation has not yet used its vast resources of power to end the long night of poverty, racism, and man's inhumanity to man. Enlarged power means enlarged peril. If that is not concomitant growth of the soul, genuine power is the right use of strength. If our nation's strength is not used responsibly and with restraint, it will be following Lord Acton's dictum, power that tends to corrupt, and power that corrupts an absolute power that corrupts absolutely. Our arrogance can be our doom. It can bring the curtains down on our national drama. Ultimately, a great nation is a compassionate nation. We are challenged in these turbulent days to use our power to speed up the day when every valley shall be exalted and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked places shall be made straight and the rough places plain. A fifth casualty of the war in Vietnam is the principle of dissent, an ugly, repressive sentiment to silence peace-seekers depicts advocates of immediate negotiation under terms of the Geneva Agreement and persons who call for the cessation of bombings in the North as quasi-traitors, fools, or venal enemies of our soldiers and institutions, free speech and the privilege of dissent and discussion of rights being shot down by bombers in Vietnam. When those who stand for peace are so vilified, it is time to consider where we are going and whether free speech has not become one of the major casualties of the war. Curtailment of free speech is rationalized on grounds that a more compelling American tradition forbids criticism of the government when the nation is at war. More than a century ago, when we were in a declared state of war with Mexico, a first-term congressman by the name of Abraham Lincoln stood in the halls of Congress and fearlessly denounced that war. Congressman Abraham Lincoln of Illinois had not heard of this tradition. Uh, he was not inclined to respect it, nor had Thoreau and Emerson and many other philosophers who shaped our democratic principles. Nothing can be more destructive of our fundamental democratic traditions than the vicious effort to silence dissenters. <laughs> sixth casualty of the war in Vietnam is the prospects of mankind's survival. This war has created the climate for greater 
armament and further expansion of destructive nuclear power. One of the most persistent ambiguities that we face is that everybody talks about peace as a goal. However, it does not take sharpest-eyed sophistication to discern that while everybody talks about peace, peace has become practically nobody's business among the power wielders. Call the role of those who sing the glad tidings of peace, and one's ears will be surprised by the responding sound. The heads of all of the nations issue clarion calls for peace, yet these destiny determiners come accompanied by a band and a brigade of national choristers, each bearing unsheathed swords rather than olive branches. The stages of history are replete with the chants and choruses of the conquerors of old who came killing in pursuit of peace. Alexander, Genghis Khan, Julius Caesar, Charlemagne, and Napoleon were akin in their seeking a peaceful world, a world fashioned after their selfish conceptions of an ideal existence. Each sought a world at peace which would personify their egotistic dream. Even within the lifespan of most of us, another megalomaniac strode across the stage of history. He sent his troops blazing across Europe, bringing havoc and holocaust in his wake. That is grave irony in the fact that Hitler could come forth following the nakedly aggressive expansionist theories he revealed in Mein Kampf and do it all in the name of peace. So when I see in this day the leaders of nations similarly talking peace while preparing for war, I take frightful pause when I see our country today intervening in what is basically a civil war, destroying hundreds of thousands of Vietnamese children and adults with napalm, and sending home half-men mutilated mentally and physically. When I see the recalcitrant unwillingness of our government to create the atmosphere for a negotiated settlement of this awful conflict, by halting bombings in the north and agreeing to talk with the Viet Cong, and all this in the name of pursuing the goal of peace, I tremble for our world. I do so not only from dire recall of the nightmares wreaked in the wars of yesterday, but also from dreadful realization of today's possible nuclear destructiveness and tomorrow's even more damnable prospect. The past is prophetic in that it asserts loudly that wars are poor chisels for carving out peaceful tomorrows. One day we must come to see that peace is not merely the distant goal that we seek, but a means by which we arrive at that goal. We must pursue peaceful ends through peaceful means. How much longer must we play... <coughs> How much longer must we play at deadly war games before we heed the plaintive pleas of the unnumbered dead and maimed of past wars? Why can't we at long last grow up and take off our blindfolds, chart new courses, 
put our hands to the rudder and set sail for the distant destination, the port city of peace. President John F. Kennedy said on one occasion, mankind must put an end to war. A war will put an end to mankind. How true this is. Wisdom born of experience should tell us that war is obsolete. There may have been a time when war served as a negative good by pre preventing the spread and growth of an evil force, but the destructive power of modern weapons eliminates even the possibility that war may serve as a negative good. If we assume that life is worth living and that man has a right to survive, then we must find an alternative to war. In a day when vehicles hurtled throughout a space and guided ballistic missiles carved highways of death through the stratosphere, no nation can claim victory in war. A so-called limited war will leave little more than a calamitous legacy of human suffering, political turmoil, and spiritual disillusionment. A world war, God forbid, will leave only smoldering ashes as a mute testimony of a human race whose folly led inexorably to ultimate death. So if modern man continues to flirt unhesitatingly with war, he will transform his earthly habitat into an inferno such as even the mind of Dante could not imagine. I do not wish to minimize the complexity of the problems that need to be faced in achieving disarmament and peace, but I think it is a fact that we shall not have the will, the courage, and the insight to deal with such matters unless in this field we are prepared to undergo a spiritual and a mental reevaluation, a change of focus, which will enable us to see that the things which seem most real and powerful are indeed now unreal and have come under the sentence of death. We need to make a supreme effort to generate the readiness, indeed the eagerness, to enter into the w new world which is now possible. We will not build a peaceful world by following a negative path. It is not enough to say we must not wage war. It is necessary to love peace and sacrifice for it. We must concentrate not merely on the negative expulsion of war, but on the positive affirmation of peace. That is a fascinating little story that is preserved for us in Greek literature about Ulysses and the sirens. The sirens had the ability to sing so sweetly that sailors could not resist steering toward their island. Many ships were lured upon the rocks, and men forgot home, duty, and honor as they flung themselves into the sea to be embraced by the arms that drew them down to death. Ulysses, determined not to be lured by the sirens, first decided to tie himself tightly to the mast of his boat, and his crew stuffed their ears with wax. But finally he and his crew learned a better way to save themselves. They took on board the beautiful singer Orpheus, whose melodies were sweeter than the music of the sirens. When Orpheus sang, who bothered to listen to the sirens? So we must fix our vision not merely on the negative expulsion of war, but upon the positive affirmation of peace, 
we must see that peace represents a sweeter music, a cosmic melody that is far superior to the discords of war. Somehow we must transform the dynamics of the world power struggle from the negative nuclear arms race, which no one can win, to a positive contest to harness man's creative genius for the purpose of making peace and prosperity a reality for all of the nations of the world. In short, we must shift from the arms race into a peace race if we have the will and determination to mount such a peace offensive. We will unlock hitherto tightly sealed doors of hope and bring new light into the dark chambers of pessimism. Let me say finally that I oppose the war in Vietnam because I love America. I speak out against it not in anger, but with anxiety and sorrow in my heart, and above all with a passionate desire to see our beloved country stand as the moral example of the world. I speak out against this war because I am disappointed with America. There can be no great disappointment where there is not great love. I am disappointed with our failure to deal positively and forthrightly with the triple evils of racism, extreme materialism, and militarism, we are presently moving down a dead-end road that can lead to national disaster. Jesus once told a parable of a young man who left home and wandered into a far country where an adventure after adventure and sensation after sensation he sought life, but he never found it. He found only frustration and bewilderment. The further he moved from his father's house, the closer he came to the house of despair. The more he did what he liked, the less he liked what he did. After the boy had wasted all the famine developed in the land, and he ended up seeking food in a pig's trough. But the story does not end there. It goes on to say that in this state of disillusionment, Blinding frustration and homesickness, the boy came to himself and said, I will arise and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before thee. The prodigal son was not himself when he left the father's house or when he dreamed that pleasure was the end of life, only when he made up his mind to go home and be a son again did he really come to himself. The parable ends with the, the boy returning home to find the loving father waiting with outstretched arms and a heart filled with unutterable joy. This is an analogy of what America confronts today. Like all human analogies, it is imperfect, but it does suggest some parallels worth considering. America has strayed to the far country of racism and militarism. The home that all too many Americans left was solidly structured idealistically. Its pillars were soundly grounded in the insights of our Judeo-Christian heritage. All men are made in the image of God. All men are brothers. All men are created equal. Every man is an heir to a legacy of dignity and worth. Every man has rights that are neither conferred nor, nor derived from the state. They are God-given. 
Out of one blood God made all men to dwell upon the face of the earth. What a marvelous foundation for any home. What a glorious and healthy place to inhabit. But America strayed away. And this unnatural excursion has brought only confusion and bewilderment. It has left hearts aching with guilt and minds distorted with irrationality. It has driven wisdom from her sacred throne. This long and callous sojourn in the far country of racism and militarism has brought a moral and spiritual famine to the nation. It is time for all people of conscience to call upon America to return to her true home of brotherhood and peaceful pursuits. We cannot remain silent. As our nation engages in one of history's most cruel and senseless wars, America must continue to have, during these days of human travail, a company of creative dissenters. We need them because the thunder of their fearless voices will be the only sound stronger than the blast of bombs and the clamor of war hysteria. Those of us who love peace must organize effectively as the war hawks. As they spread the propaganda of war, we must spread the propaganda of peace. We must combine the fervor of the civil rights movement with the peace movement. We must demonstrate, teach, and preach until the very foundations of our nation are shaken. We must work unceasingly to lift this nation that we love to a higher destiny, to a new plateau of compassion, to, more, no, to a more noble expression of humaneness. I have tried to be honest today. To be honest is to confront the truth. To be honest is to realize that the ultimate measure of a man is not where he stands in moments of convenience and moments of comfort, but where he stands in moments of challenge and moments of controversy. However unpleasant, and inconvenient the truth may be, I believe we must expose and face it if we are to achieve a better quality of American life. Just the other day, the distinguished American historian Henry Steele Cominger told the Senate committee, and I quote, Justice Holmes used to say that the first lesson a judge had to learn was that he was not God. We do tend, perhaps more than other nations, to transfer our wars into crusades. Our current involvement in Vietnam is cast increasingly into a moral mold. It is my feeling that we do not have the resources, material, intellectual, or moral, to be at once an American power, a European power, and an Asian power. I agree with Mr. Cummings, and I would suggest that is another kind of power that America can and should be. It is a moral power, a power harnessed to the service of peace and human beings, not an inhuman power, at least against defenseless people. All of the world knows that America is a great military power. We need not be diligent in seeking to prove it. We must now show the world our moral power. That is an element of urgency in our redirecting American power. We are now faced with the fact that tomorrow is today. 
We are confronted with the fierce urgency of now in this unfolding conundrum of life and history. There's such a thing as being too late. Procrastination is still the thief of time. Life often leaves us standing bare, naked and dejected with a lost opportunity. The tide in the affairs of men does not remain at flooded ebbs. We may cry out desperately for time to pause in her passage, but time is adamant in every plea. It rushes on over the bleached bones and cluttered, cluttered wreckage of numerous civilizations are written the pathetic words too late. There is an invisible book of life that faithfully records our vigilance or our neglect. The moving finger writes and having writ moves on. We still have a choice today, nonviolent coexistence, a violent co-annihilation. History will record the choice we make. It is still not too late to make the proper choice. If we to de decide to become a moral power, we will be able to transform the jangling discords of this world into a beautiful symphony of brotherhood. If we make the wise decision, we will be able to transform our pending national and cosmic elegy into a creative psalm of peace. This will be a glorious day. If we will only do it, we will speed up the day when all of God's children, black men and white men, Jews and Gentiles, Protestants and Catholics, Easterners and Westerners, will be able to join hands and sing in the words of the old Negro spiritual, free at last, free at last. Thank God Almighty, we are free at last. That was a historic speech uh, by Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr., uh, talking about uh, the casualties of the Vietnam War. That was during February of 1967. And uh, in March of 1967 in Chicago, uh, Dr. King led an anti-war march along with many other peace and labor leaders. And then, of course, on April 4th, at Riverside Church in uh, New York City. So uh, we just mentioned earlier that uh, the 21st annual Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. rally in March will be held in the city of Detroit on January 15th, beginning at noon. It'll be at the St. Matthew's, St. Saint Matthew's, St. Joseph's Church, uh, located at 8850 Woodward Avenue at Holbrook, between Holbrook and King. And uh, as we mentioned, um, invited guest speakers include Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib and uh, President Sean Fain of the UAW International. And, of course, uh, you're listening to the Pan-African Journal, this uh, special worldwide uh, radio broadcast uh, for Monday, uh, January 1, 2024. We're broadcasting from our studios in downtown Detroit. We'll take a break. We'll be back uh, with more of the Pan-African Journal for this week.
Welcome back. And that was the Band of Gypsies uh, from New Year's Eve uh, at the Fillmore East uh, doing the track entitled Easy Rider uh, with Jimi Hendrix on guitar, Billy Cox on bass, and Buddy Miles on drums. And right now we want to move into another <clears throat> address uh, from Luther King Jr. This one is called The Other America. It was delivered uh, at Stanford University on April 14th of and members of the student body of this great institution of learning, ladies and gentlemen. Now there are several things that uh, one could talk about before such a large, uh, concerned, and enlightened audience. There are so many problems facing our nation and our world that one could just take off anywhere. But today I would like to talk mainly about the race problem since I'll have to rush right out and go to New York to talk about Vietnam tomorrow and I've been talking about it a great deal uh, this week and weeks before that. But I'd like to use as a subject from which to speak this afternoon the other America. And I use this subject because there are literally two Americas. One America is beautiful for situation. And in a sense, this America is overflowing with the milk of prosperity and the honey of opportunity. This America is the habitat of millions of people who have food and material necessities for their bodies, and culture and education for their minds, and freedom and human dignity for their spirits. In this America, millions of people experience every day the opportunity of having life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness in all of their dimensions. And in this America, millions of young people grow up in the sunlight of opportunity. But tragically and unfortunately, there is another America this other America has a daily ugliness about it that constantly transforms the buoyancy of hope into the fatigue of despair. 
In this America, millions of work-starved men walk the streets daily in search for jobs that do not exist. In this America, millions of people find themselves living in rat-infested, vermin-filled slums. In this America, people are poor by the millions, and they find themselves perishing on a lonely island of poverty in the midst of a vast ocean of material prosperity. In a sense, the greatest tragedy of this other America is what it does to little children. Little children in this other America are forced to grow up with clouds of inferiority forming every day in their little mental skies. And as we look at this other America, we see it as an arena of blasted hopes and shattered dreams. Many people of various backgrounds live in this other America. Some are Mexican-Americans, some are Puerto Ricans, some are Indians, some happen to be from other groups. Millions of them are Appalachian whites. Probably the largest group in this other America in proportion to its size in the population is the American Negro. The American Negro finds himself living in a triple ghetto, a ghetto of race, a ghetto of poverty, a ghetto is to deal with this problem, to deal with this problem of the two Americas. We are seeking to make America one nation, indivisible with liberty and justice for all. Now let me say that the struggle for civil rights or the struggle to make these two Americas one America is much more difficult today than it was five or ten years ago for about a decade or maybe 12 years. We've struggled all across the South in glorious struggles to get rid of legal, overt segregation and all of the humiliation that surrounded that system of segregation. In a sense, this was a struggle for decency. We could not go to a lunch counter in so many instances and get a hamburger or a cup of coffee. We could not make use of public accommodations. Public transportation was segregated, and often we had to sit in the back and within transportation, uh, transportation within cities, we often had to stand over empty seats because sections were reserved for whites only. We did not have the right to vote in so many areas of the South. And the struggle was to deal with these problems. Now certainly they were difficult problems, they were humiliating conditions, 
By the thousands we protested these conditions. We made it clear that it was ultimately more honorable to accept jail cell experiences than to accept segregation and humiliation. By the thousand students and adults decided to sit in at segregated lunch counters to protest conditions there. When they were sitting at those lunch counters, they were in reality standing up for the best in the American dream and seeking to take the whole nation back to those great wells of democracy which were dug deep by the founding fathers in the formulation of the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence. Many things were gained as a result of these years of struggle. In 1964, the Civil Rights Bill came into being after the Birmingham Movement, which did a great deal to subpoena the conscience of a large segment of the nation to appear before the judgment seat of morality on the whole question of civil rights. After the Selma Movement in 1965, we were able to get a voting rights bill now, all of these things represented strides, but we must see that the struggle today is much more difficult. It's more difficult today because we are struggling now for genuine equality. And it's much easier to integrate a lunch counter than it is to guarantee a livable income and a good solid job. It's much easier to guarantee the right to vote than it is to guarantee the right to live in sanitary decent housing conditions. It is much easier to integrate a public park than it is to make genuine quality integrated education a reality. And so today we are struggling for something which says we demand genuine equality. It's not merely a struggle against extremist behavior toward Negroes. And I'm convinced that many of the very people who supported us in the struggle in the South are not willing to go all the way now. I came to see this in a very difficult and painful way in Chicago over the last year where I've lived and worked. Some of the people who came quickly to march with us in Selma and Birmingham were active around Chicago. And I came to see that so many people who supported morally and even financially what we were doing in Birmingham and Selma were really outraged against the extremist behavior of Bull Connor and Jim Clark toward Negroes rather than believing in genuine equality for Negroes. And I think this is what we've got to see now and this is what makes the struggle much more difficult. And so as a result of all of this, we see many problems existing today that are growing more difficult. It's something that is often overlooked, 
but Negroes generally live in worse slums today than 20 or 25 years ago. In the North, schools are more segregated today than they were in 1954 when the Supreme Court's decision on desegregation was rendered. Economically, the Negro is worth, worse off today than he was 15 and 20 years ago. And so the unemployment rate among whites at one time was about the same as the unemployment rate among Negroes. But today the unemployment rate among Negroes is twice that of whites. And the average income of the Negro is today 50% less than whites. And as we look at these problems, we see them growing and developing every day. We see the fact that the Negro economically is facing a depression in his everyday life that is more staggering than the depression of the 30s. The unemployment rate of the nation as a whole is about 4%. Statistics would say from the Labor Department that among Negroes it's about 8.4%. But these are the persons who are in the labor market, who still go to employment agencies to seek jobs, and so they can be calculated. The statistics can be gotten because they are still somehow in the labor market. But there are hundreds of thousands of Negroes who have given up. They've lost hope. They've come to feel that life is a long and desolate corridor for them with no exit signs. And so they no longer go to look for a job. There are those who would estimate that these persons who are called the discouraged persons would be 6 or 7% in the Negro community. And that means that unemployment among Negroes may well be 16%. And among Negro youth in some of our large urban areas, it goes to 30 and 40%. And so you can see what I mean when I say that in the Negro community that is a major, tragic, and staggering depression that we face in our everyday lives. Now the other thing that we've got to come to see now that many of us didn't see too well during the last 10 years, and that is that racism is still alive in American society and much more widespread than we realize. And we must see racism for what it is. It is a myth of the superior and the inferior race. It is the false and tragic notion that one particular group one particular race is responsible for all of the progress, all of the insight and the total flow of history and the theory that another group or another race is totally depraved, innately impure, and innately inferior. And in the final analysis, racism is evil because this, its ultimate logic is genocide. Hitler was a sick and tragic man 
who carried racism to its logical conclusion. And he ended up leading a nation to the point of killing about six million Jews. And this is the tragedy of racism because its ultimate logic is genocide. If one says that I am not good enough to live next door to him, if one says that I am not good enough to eat at a lunch counter, or to have a good, decent job, or to go to school with him merely because of my race, he is saying consciously or unconsciously that I do not deserve to exist. To use a philosophical analogy here, racism is not based on some empirical generalization. It is based rather on an ontological affirmation. It is not the assertion that certain people are behind culturally or otherwise because of environmental conditions. It is the affirmation that the very being of a people is inferior. And this is the great tragedy of it. I say that however unpleasant it is, we must honestly see and admit that racism is still deeply rooted all over America, is still deeply rooted in the North, and it's still deeply rooted in the South. Now this leads me to say something about another discussion that we hear a great deal, and that is the so-called white backlash. And I would like to honestly say to you that the white backlash is merely a new name for an old phenomenon not something that just came into being because shouts of shouts of black power or because Negroes engaged in riots in Watts, for instance. The fact is that the state of California voted a fair housing bill out of existence before anybody shouted black power or before anybody rioted in Watts. It may well be that shouts of black power and riots in Watts and the Harlems and the other areas are the consequences of the white backlash rather than the cause of them. What it is necessary to see is that there has never been a single solid monistic determined commitment on the part of the vast majority of white Americans in the whole question of civil rights and on the whole question of racial equality. This is something that truth impels all men of goodwill to admit. It is said on the Statue of Liberty that America is the home of exiles. But it doesn't take us long to realize that America has been the home of its white exiles from Europe. But it has not evinced the same kind of maternal care and concern for its black exiles from Africa. And it is no wonder that in one of his sorrow songs the Negro could sing out, sometimes I feel like a motherless child. What great estrangement, what great sense of rejection caused the people to emerge with such a metaphor as they looked over their lives. What I'm trying to get across is that our nation has constantly taken a positive step forward on the question of racial justice and racial equality. But over and over again at the same time, it 
made certain backward steps. And this has been the persistence of the so-called white backlash. In 1863, the Negro was freed from the bondage of physical slavery. But at the same time, the nation refused to give him land to make that freedom meaningful. And at that same period, America was giving millions of acres of land in the West and the Midwest, which meant that America was willing to undergird its white peasants from Europe with an economic floor that would make it possible to grow and develop. And it refused to give that economic floor to its black peasants, so to speak. And this is why Frederick Douglass could say that emancipation for the Negro was freedom to hunger, freedom to the winds and rains of heaven, freedom without roofs to cover their heads. He went on to say that it was freedom without bread to eat, freedom without land to cultivate. It was freedom and famine at the same time. But it does not stop there. In 1875, the nation passed a civil rights bill and refused to enforce it. In 1964, the nation passed a weaker civil rights bill. And even to this day, that bill has not been totally enforced in all of its dimensions. The nation heralded a new day of concern for the poor, for the poverty-stricken, for the disadvantaged, and brought into being a poverty bill. But at the same time, it put such little money into the program that it was hardly and still remains hardly a good skirmish against poverty. White politicians in suburb, suburbs talk eloquently against open housing and in the same breath contend that they are not racist. Now all of this and all of these things tell us that America has been backlashing on the whole question of basic constitutional and God-given rights for Negroes and other disadvantaged groups for more than 300 years. So these conditions, persistence of widespread poverty, of slums, and of tragic conditions in schools and other areas of life, all of these things have brought about a great deal of despair and a great deal of desperation, a great deal of disappointment and even bitterness in the Negro communities. And today all of our cities confront huge problems. All of our cities are potentially powder kegs as a result of the continued existence of these conditions. Many in moments of anger, many in moments of deep bitterness, engage in riots. And let me say, as I've always said, and I will always continue to say, that riots are socially destructive and self-defeating. I'm still convinced that nonviolence is the most potent weapon available to oppress people in their struggle for freedom and justice. I feel that 
violence will only create more social problems than they will solve. And that in a real sense it is impractical for the Negro to even think of mounting a violent revolution in the United States. So I will continue to condemn riots and continue to say to my brothers and sisters that this is not the way. Continue to affirm that there is another way. But at the same time, it is as necessary for me to be as vigorous in condemning the conditions which cause persons to feel that they must engage in riotous activities as it is for me to condemn riots. I think America must see that riots do not develop out of thin air. Certain conditions continue to exist in our society which must be condemned as vigorously as we condemn riots. But in the final analysis, a riot is the language of the unheard. What is it that America has failed to hear? It has failed to hear that the plight of the Negro poor has worsened over the last few years. It has failed to hear that the promises of freedom and justice have not been met. And it has failed to hear that large segments of white society are more concerned about tranquility and the status quo than about justice, equality, and humanity. And so in a real sense, our nation's summers of riots are caused by our nation's winters of delay. And as long as America postpones justice, we stand in the position of having these recurrences of violence and riots over and over again. Social justice and progress are the absolute guarantors of riot prevention. Now let me go on to say that if we are to deal with all of the problems that I've talked about, if we are to bring America to the point that we have one nation indivisible with liberty and justice for all, there are certain things that we must do. The job ahead must be massive and positive. We must develop massive action programs all over the United States of America in order to deal with the problems that I have mentioned. Now, in order to develop these massive action programs, we've got to get rid of one or two false notions that continue to exist in our society. One is the notion that only time can solve the problem of racial injustice. I'm sure you've heard this idea it is the notion almost that that is something in the very, the very flow of time that will miraculously cure all evils. And I've heard this over and over again. There are those, and they're often sincere people, who say to Negroes and their allies in the white community that we should slow up and just be nice and patient and continue to pray, and in 100 and two, uh, 200 years the problem will work itself out because only time can solve the problem. 
I think that is an answer to that myth. And it is that time is neutral. It can be used either constructively or destructively. And I'm absolutely convinced that the forces of ill will in our nation, the extreme rightists in our nation, have often used time much more effectively than the forces of goodwill. And it may well be that we will have to repent in this generation not merely for the vitriolic words of the bad people and the violent actions of the bad people, but for the appalling silence and indifference of the good people who sit around and say, wait on time. Somewhere we must come to see that social progress never rolls in on the wheels of inevitability. It comes through the tireless efforts and the persistent work of dedicated individuals, and without this hard work, time itself becomes an ally of the primitive forces of social stagnation. And so we must help time, and we must realize that the time is always right to do right. Now, there's another notion that gets out. It's around everywhere. It's in the South, it's in the North, it's in California and all over our nation. It's a notion that legislation can't solve the problem, it can't do anything in this area. And those who <coughs> project this argument contend that you've got to change the heart and that you can't change the heart through legislation. Now, I would be the first one to say that there is real need for a lot of heart changing in our country, and uh, I believe in changing the heart. I preach about it. I believe in the need for conversion in many instances and regeneration, to use theological terms. And I would be the first to say that if the race problem in America is to be solved, the white person must treat the Negro right not merely because the law says it, but because it's natural, because it's right, and because the Negro is his brother. And so I realize that if we are to have a truly integrated society, men and women will have to rise to the majestic heights of being obedient to the unenforceable. But after saying this, let me say, Another thing which gives the other side, and that is that although it may be true that morality cannot be legislated, behavior can be regulated. Even though it may be true that the law cannot change the heart, it can restrain the heartless. Even though it may be true that the law cannot make a man love me, it can restrain him from lynching me, and I think that's pretty important also. And so while the law may not change the hearts of men, it can and it does change the habits of men. And when you begin to change the habits of men, pretty soon the attitudes will be changed, pretty soon the hearts will be changed. Now I'm convinced that we still need strong civil rights legislation. And there's a bill before Congress right now to have a national a federal open housing bill, a federal law declaring discrimination in housing unconstitutional, and also a bill to make 
the administration of justice real all over our country. Now, nobody can doubt the need for this. Nobody can doubt the need if he thinks about the fact that since 1963, some 58 Negroes and white civil rights workers have been brutally murdered in the state of Mississippi alone. Not a single person has been convicted for these dastardly crimes. There have been some indictments, but no one has been convicted. And so there is a need for the whole question of the administration of justice. There is a need for fair housing laws all over our country. And it is tragic indeed that Congress last year allowed this bill to die. And that bill died in Congress a bit of democracy died, a bit of our commitment to justice died. And if it happens again in this section, session of Congress, a greater degree of our commitment to democratic principles will die. And I can see no more dangerous trend in our country than the constant developing of predominantly Negro central cities ringed by white suburbs. This is only inviting social disaster. And the only way this problem will be solved is by the nation taking a strong stand and by state governments taking a strong stand against housing segregation and against discrimination in all of these areas. Now, there's another thing that I'd like to mention as I talk about the Massive Action Program, and time will not permit me to go into specific programmatic action to any great degree. But it must be realized now that the Negro cannot solve the problem by himself. And there again, there are those who always say to Negroes, why don't you do something for yourself? Why don't you lift yourselves by your own bootstraps? And we hear this over and over again. Now certainly, there are many things that we must do for ourselves and that only we can do for ourselves. Certainly, we must develop within a sense of dignity and self-respect that nobody else can give us, a sense of manhood, a sense of personhood, a sense of not be, being ashamed of our heritage, not being ashamed of our color. It was wrong and tragic that the Negro ever allowed himself to be ashamed of the fact that he was black or ashamed of the fact that his home, ancestral home, was African. And so there's a great deal that the Negro can do to develop self-respect. There's a great deal that the Negro must do and can do to amass political and economic power within his own community and by using his own resources. And so we must do certain things for ourselves, but this must not negate the fact and cause the nation to overlook the fact that the Negro cannot solve the problem him himself. A man was on the plane with me some weeks ago and he came and talked with me and he said, uh, problem, Dr. King, that I see with what you all are doing is that every time I see you and other Negroes, you are protesting, and you aren't, you aren't doing anything for yourselves. And he went on to tell me that 
he was very poor at one time and he was able to make it by doing something for himself. Why don't you teach your people, he said, to live themselves by their own bootstraps. And then he went on to say other groups uh, faced disadvantages, the Irish, the Italians, and he went down the line. And I said to him that it does not help the Negro, it only deepens his frustration for unfeeling and sensitive people to say to him, that other ethnic groups who migrated or were immigrants to this country just a hundred years ago or so have gotten beyond him and he came here some 344 years ago. And I went on to remind him that the Negro came to this country involuntarily in chains while others came voluntarily. I went on to remind him that no other racial group has been a slave on American soil. I went on to remind him that the other problem that we have faced over the years is that the society placed a stigma on the, the color of the Negro, on the color of his skin, because he was black. Doors were closed to him that were not closed to other groups. And I'm to say to people, that you ought to lift yourself by your own bootstraps. But it is a cruel jest to say to a bootless man that he ought to lift himself by his own bootstraps. And the fact is that millions of Negroes, as a result of centuries of denial and neglect, have been left bootless. And they find themselves impoverished aliens in this affluent society. And that is a great deal that the society can and must do if the Negro is to gain the economic security that he needs. Now one of the answers, it seems to me, is a guaranteed annual income, a guaranteed minimum income for all people and for all families of our country. It seems to me... It seems to me that the civil rights movement must now begin to organize for the guaranteed annual income, begin to organize people all over our country and mobilize forces so that we can bring to the attention of our nation this need and this something which I believe will go a long, long way toward dealing with the Negroes' economic problem and the economic problem with many other poor people confronting our nation. Now, I said I wasn't going to talk about Vietnam, but I can't make a speech without mentioning some of the problems that we face there, because... <laughs> because I think this war has diverted attention from civil rights, it has strengthened the forces of reaction in our country and has brought to the forefront the military-industrial complex that even President Eisenhower warned us against at one time. And above all, it is destroying human lives. It's destroying the lives of thousands of the young, promising men of our nation, destroying the lives of little boys and little girls in Vietnam. But one of the greatest things that this war is doing to us in civil rights is that it is allowing the great society 
to be shot down on the battlefields of Vietnam every day. And I submit this afternoon that we can end poverty in the United States. Our nation has the resources to do it. The national gross product of America will rise to the astounding figure some $807 this year. We have the resources. The question is whether the nation has the will. And I submit that if we can spend $5 billion a year to fight an ill-considered war in Vietnam and $20 billion to put a man on the moon, our nation can spend billions of dollars even on their own two feet right here on Earth. Let me say another thing that's more in the realm of the spirit, I guess. That is, if we are to go on in the days ahead and make true brotherhood a reality, it is necessary for us to realize more than ever before that the destinies of the Negro and the white man are tied together. Now, there are still a lot of people who don't realize this. The races still don't realize this. But it is a fact now that Negroes and whites are tied together. And we need each other. The Negro needs the white man to save him from his fear. The white man needs the Negro to save him from his guilt. We are tied together in so many ways, our language, our music, our cultural patterns, our material prosperity, and even our food are an amalgam of black and white. And so there can be no separate black path to power and fulfillment that does not intersect white roots. There can be no separate white path to power and fulfillment short of social disaster it does not recognize the need of sharing that power with black aspirations for freedom and justice. We must come to see now that integration is not merely a romantic or aesthetic something where you merely add color to a still predominantly white power structure. Integration must be seen also on political terms where there is shared power where black men and white men share power together to build a new and a great nation. In a real sense, we're all caught in an inescapable network of mutuality tied in a single garment of destiny. John Donne placed it years ago in graphic terms, no man is an island in private health. Every man is a piece of the continent, a part of the main. He goes on toward the end to say any man's death diminishes me because I'm involved in mankind. Therefore, never send to know for whom the bell tolls. It tolls for thee. And so we all in the same situation. The salvation of the Negro will mean the salvation of the white man and the destruction, the life, of the ongoing progress of the Negro will be the destruction of the ongoing progress of the nation.
Welcome back. And that was a historic address uh, by Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. at Stanford uh, University on April 14th of 1967. On the other America, that's going to conclude our program uh, for today. I want to remind you again, uh, the 21st annual MLK Day Rally in March will be held in Detroit on January 15th, the official holiday at noon at the St. Matthew St. Joseph's Episcopal Church, located at 8850 uh, Woodward Avenue uh, near Holbrook and King. And uh, keynote speakers will be Rashida Tlaib uh, of the U.S. Congress and uh, Sean Fain of the UAW, among others. If you'd like to have access to this program, go to our website at the Pan-African Radio Network. That's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. If you'd like to have access to the Pan-African Newswire so you can stay informed about some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day, just uh, go to our website uh, at uh, panafricannews.blogspot.com. And uh, we're going to close out uh, with the music of the legendary Phyllis Hyman uh, from the album Prime of My Life. This is uh, Abayomi Azikawe signing off and have a beautiful week. Not in love with him